Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning again. So exciting to be diving into this series, The Gifts of Christmas, uh, built around Advent. Uh, full disclosure, full confession, I have no experience with Advent except for last service. So I'm officially one service of Advent under, uh, under my belt. And uh, I'm just wondering, for, for how many of you was Advent part of your Christmas tradition kind of growing up? Okay, few of you, few of you, yeah. It was not part of mine, and so I'm learning as we go. So since we're family, we're full disclosure, I may make a mistake or tweak something here or there. And uh, most of you who didn't experience Advent won't know any difference. And those of you um, who do can be gracious and uh, avoid emailing me uh, all of my deficiencies as we learn and grow together uh, in the season of Advent. I'm really excited about that. And we're launching uh, this week with a conversation about hope. And uh, it's funny because I know this was a really busy weekend, and for many of you, hopes were either they're dashed or fulfilled based on football games. And, uh, and so you experienced either a tremendous amount of hope being fulfilled or some hope being dashed, but we can all agree that the Hawks are going to crush my Niners. And so you have plenty of hope for this afternoon um, in your sports world. <laughs> but, uh, but hope is an interesting and fascinating thing as we walk into this season of Advent. And as we do, it's probably important that we just have a little bit of conversation about what Advent is. And uh, the word Advent means coming or arrival. And it's a season that we, um, as a church body, uh, mark by this sense of expectation of what God has done and what God will continue to do. It's like an extension of Christmas, and it links us uh, through the years with those that have celebrated the coming of Jesus, of the, uh, of the presence of the Messiah. And we get to share in that uh, with generations and with churches across the globe. And so really excited to do that. And kind of one of the ways we do that is we light candles. And the purpose behind that is the picture that I read from Isaiah in, in this, uh, this morning's reading that a light came into the world. And so each of the candles that we light represent one of the attributes of Advent and the Christmas season that we expect and appreciate. So I'll get fancier as this, uh, in this as we go, but for our purposes, I will light the first candle to represent hope. And uh, we're diving into a conversation about hope today. And hope's a fascinating thing to think about, especially as we get into the holiday season um, and we look around, I think about hope and the different ways that we consider the word. And I'm thinking about the different things we say. When we use hope in our vocabulary, we usually talk about things like, I hope it doesn't rain. Well, not here, because we just accept our fate in the Northwest. But in other places, things like, I hope it doesn't rain. Most places are praying, they hope that they do get some rain, right? And we're like, we hope we can share and it will move down. But we use the phrase like, I hope it doesn't rain. We say things like, I hope I get that job or I hope I get that girl or that guy or that person, right? I hope the world will be at peace. I hope, I hope that someone is healthy that I care about. I hope that person I care about shows up. I hope you can fill in the blank. Worldly hope is characterized often by doubt, uncertainty, and a lack of control. And so when we talk about hope, sometimes it's packaged in this sense of, well, I can't control anything anyways. I don't know what's going to happen. And so we have to define hope if we're going to have a conversation about hope. Because godly hope is not anchored to the same thing that worldly hope is anchored to where worldly hope is anchored to a sense of uncertainty and a lack of control, our godly hope, our hope in God is anchored to the promises and the word of God. But hope literally means the expectation of something good. 
the expectation of something good. Hope is an expectation that I have that something good will happen. Doesn't it seem like our world could use some hope right now? I was uh, spending time this week, you know, as I thought about hope and was praying, and I thought maybe what I'll do as an exercise is I'll go through and I'll, I'll follow some major news channels uh, and I'll go to their websites and I'll look for articles that inspire hope. It's going into the Christmas season. There'll probably be some of those. Sadly, my hopes were dashed and I decided not to do that exercise after a little bit of time exploring some of the articles. It didn't seem like that. The problem is there seems to be more hopelessness in the world now than I've ever seen before. The narrative and the story being told through media, through voices, through whatever, is always a preponderance of hopelessness. So I thought it would be important that we think for a minute about what causes hopelessness. What causes hopelessness? I mean, if hope is an expectation of something good, then hopelessness by default is a sense that something bad is inevitable. That something bad is inevitable. And as I started looking through articles, just thinking about what are the things that make me feel hopeless. Reading stories about bad news after bad news after bad news, from shootings to bombings to floods to fires to sexual assault and abuse. And I'm watching this article after article after article. And those aren't even the political ones. Those are just the news. And I thought, man, no wonder. No wonder there is this preponderance of hopelessness, this sense of No expectation of something good. As a matter of fact, I found myself as I was tracking news stories a little bit more closely, just wondering which individual was going to be in the news for something horrific today. Story after story, whether they were a victim or a victimizer or an abuse uh, victim or abuser. And I was reading story after story and I thought, man, what better time for people who know the true meaning of hope to begin telling the story of hope? than right now. What better time for God's people to begin countering the narrative of hopelessness with the truth of the story of what we talk about in this season and the presence of hope. And so I got to thinking about different things that can be causes, root causes of hopelessness for people. One of those things I thought about was loneliness. Many of the stories that I read or that I've interacted with with people suffering from hopelessness, constantly, constantly connected to loneliness. No one cares. No one knows me. Finances, time and time again, the story comes up, especially this time of year, this pressure in the financial world and a sense of perhaps hopelessness that my means and my needs don't match up. I'm stressed and feeling hopeless. Relationships, broken relationships, some of our closest core relationships, not where we'd like to see them, and we begin to feel hopeless, like it won't ever get better. Health, conversation after conversation. I was just in a conversation this week with someone who got very bad news. And battling a sense of hopelessness. Thinking about family this time of year, and thinking about things not going according to plan. Conversations with folks, but whether it's with their significant other, their children, whatever the scenario is, thinking about, man, things just don't seem to be going according to plan. And in creeps this sense of hopelessness. For some, it's just how they've been living. And they see the patterns of their behavior and the cycles of their life, and they think, yeah, you 
I hear this story of hope, but my reality does not seem to measure out to your conversation. And so this sense of hopelessness of things that they're going through, whenever things don't go as well as we predicted, we lose the sense of believing in something good, that something good is about to happen. We get frustrated and then history repeats itself and I, we get into cycle of frustrations and the cycle of hopelessness continues. And so in the fullness of time at just the right moment, God sends hope into the world for us. And the incredible thing is then we become ambassadors of that hope. The scriptures tell us that we have the ministry of reconciliation, that we are now assigned literally as God's ambassadors to represent his interest and his voice here on earth. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if in a room like this, in a place like this, in a neighborhood like the one that we live in, if suddenly the voice and the story of hope began to come out of people, to counter the narrative and the other voices that we seem to hear. And so we dive into this Advent season and the story of hope and the Christmas story. And if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna be in Luke chapter one and you can jump over there. And I wanna give you a little bit of the history. And I know, I know some of you love history, some of you don't, but I just wanna give you a little bit of the story of what's happening when this first moment of hope begins to be fulfilled. I read to you from Isaiah, this promise of a child that is coming to rescue us from hope. But if you think about it, Luke begins the story. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All of the gospels pick up the story of the people of God after a massive gap between the Old and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, between the last writings of the Old Testament and the first writings of the New Testament, there's over 400 years of time that go by. That means for 400 years, essentially, God has been silent to his people. Can you imagine the sense of hopelessness that may come in if generation after generation, that's as many as 10 generations, living their entire life, dying, passing on the story of their faith, but no interaction that we know of with God. No scripture, no prophecies, nothing. So we go back a couple of pages. If you, you're in Luke, you can just jump back to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and see what the last thing God communicated before he shut the book for 400 years to prepare for the perfect moment in time to reintroduce hope into the planet. Malachi chapter four, the last couple of verses, verse four through six, say this, and this is the prophet Malachi speaking from the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He says, Elijah's coming back. I'm sending you a voice. I'm sending you Elijah. See, I will send you Elijah. Verse six, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Listen to this. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Book closed. 400 years go by. 400 years. And the last words of God are Elijah's coming. And when he comes, he's going to be the initiator of hope. He's going to restore the hearts of fathers and children. He's going to put things back in order according to God's plan. So you guys just be ready for that because if you're not, curse. Uh, okay, God. And then 400 years of history 
go by. And we don't talk much about what happened in those 400 years. But in those 400 years, a lot of things happen. If you know some world history, you know when this is being written, the Persians are in control. But then Alexander the Great shows up, and Alexander the Great conquers the known world. Alexander the Great dies, um, I think in his 30s, and when he dies, they say, who's going to be in charge? The whole known world is conquered. And his final words are, give it to the strong. And so his four strongest generals carve out territories and they carve out land of all the known land along the Mediterranean. And two of the generals, I won't say their name because they're hard to pronounce. One of them has Assyria and the area over there and the other one has Egypt. And during that time, they battle. Well, if you know where Egypt and Syria are, if they meet on the battlefield, that's Israel. And during that time, they fight and they battle. And Israel is essentially a battleground where these two cultures are at war and battle after battle happens and different groups are in control of Israel at that time. And, uh, and the temple essentially is gone and wiped out. And at one point, while they, uh, while they are occupying it, as a matter of fact, they actually sacrificed uh, uh, sac- uh, sacrifices at the temple ground, this other cultures did, that were horrific to the Jews. They sacrificed pigs and things that, that weren't kosher, that would not have been acceptable to them. And during that time, you have the Maccabee revolution and, uh, and uh, the Maccabees show up and they, they, that family drives out the, uh, the local oppressors. And that's the whole Hanukkah story we can get to another time. I'm just giving you a quick history wrap up. And then suddenly Pompey shows up and he wipes everybody out and Rome is now in power and then Caesar and all of those things happen. And that's where the story picks up the, through the course of 400 years. So from when God spoke last, to the state of the world today, when Luke picks up the authorship of this, things have changed. Now Herod is in control and Herod is not liked. He's not culturally Jewish. Um, he's, he's grafted in, uh, but he is a good manipulator, good negotiator, good politician. Rome puts him in power so that the, uh, the local area will stay under control and pay their taxes. He's wise enough to rebuild the temple and let the Jews begin to participate in their public worship and their place of worship as long as they're obedient and paying their taxes to Rome. And that's where we enter into Luke's story. Luke chapter one, and we get to this story. Now it's important to recognize who Luke is. He's grown up, he's Greek. He's a Gentile. He is not Jewish. As a matter of fact, he's the only non-Jew to write the New Testament. He's the only one. And as a matter of fact, he writes two books. He writes the gospel of Luke. And does anybody else know the other one? Acts. He writes Acts. He writes two books, two of the most important books in scripture. What we know about Luke, he was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He was not a disciple in the original group. He was most likely uh, Josephus and Eusebius. uh, Other authors of antiquity say he's from Antioch, which makes sense because a lot of the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of the book of Acts happens in Antioch. A lot of the story we know is things that were happening in Antioch. And so Luke was likely from Antioch, which is uh, north, of, <coughs> north of Jerusalem near Syria in the Assyrian area up there. Whew, that was easy for you to say. <clears throat> so Luke was from there. We know Luke was a physician because Paul in Colossians calls him the beloved physician. We know he was a doctor. We know he was educated. We know he was a great and gifted historian. If I had time, I would unpackage for you some of the, uh, some of the literary criticism that was done uh, to the scriptures, especially the book of Acts and the book of Luke, because there's so many historical uh, markers that can be traced through time and history, important individuals, politicians, places where exterior sources 
other than the scriptures would confirm or deny the validity of those scriptures based on the names and the places. And, and many having tried to, uh, tried to discredit the scriptures have looked at Luke and Acts and said, whoa, Luke was an incredible historian. He was clear and concise and accurate to the letter. He was a doctor. He was a historian. Some other things that maybe are conjecture about the life of Luke, but are important for us to know. He writes his letters to someone named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was in history, but he refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus. Why is that important? Well, that's a title given to like Roman nobility, someone significant. And we do know at that time, it was not uncommon for Roman uh, kind of uh, nobility to actually, among their slaves, hire and employ and conscribe doctors. When we think of doctors, we think of them enslaving us with bills and debt. No offense if there's any doctors in the house. But we think of them as upper class. But at this time, it was very common if you were wealthy to keep a personal doctor that you would take care of your household and your employee and they would pay extravagant amounts, but basically they would, uh, they would own them. And so it is highly possible based on this time that Luke either was currently a slave or had been a redeemed or released slave at some point and that this letter to Theophilus may have been something that was conscribed by him or, or according to Theophilus's wishes to have someone as wise and intelligent and historically accurate as Luke go and do the investigative work. We know he became a Christian in Antioch. We know he was a follower of Paul. We know he traveled with Paul. You can see as you read the book of Acts, the first 15 chapters of Acts, the, the, the author writes in third person, they went here, they went there, they did this, they did this. About chapter 16, it changes. We, we went here, we did this, we went that. So we believe based on that, that Luke probably traveled with Paul on his second and third missionary journey. So he had access and time with Paul. And it makes sense that he and Paul would be peers because of their intellect, intelligence, and kind of the, uh, the background and, and, and uh, education that they would have shared. We know that Luke is the best literal writer in the New Testament in terms of his language and his grammar and the properness of his Greek. Um, Greek classes teach Luke because he actually writes well and uh, is, uh, is uh, very impressive in how he masters and handles the language. We also know that he interviewed eyewitnesses. He'll share that that's what he did. And so he had access in Antioch to the apostles who had relocated there. We also know he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem while Paul was imprisoned for over two years there. And we know with almost certainty, almost certainty, that he interviewed Mary because of the details of his account that could have only been known by Mary. And so he was there at the same time as her in uh, Jerusalem. And so he was gathering eyewitnesses accounts and it would seem absurd if he not interviewed Mary. So much of his story is taken from eyewitness accounts, from meeting with writers and gospel writers and from hanging out with Mary. How cool is that? So Luke, a Greek in the middle of this culture meets Jesus and on assignment writes this gospel. And he begins, many have undertaken an account of how things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those whom for they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated these things from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. That's how Luke opens his letter. 
He says, many people tried to write this down, but I wanted to make sure we got the right story for you, most excellent Theophilus. So I went and interviewed them and I jotted it down accurately for you. And that's Luke. Luke gives us more information about the uh, origin of Christ. That's why most of the Christmas messages are out of Luke because he talked to Mary who was there at that time. So Luke introduces us to two incredible individuals who don't show up in any of the other gospel accounts. They're a couple, an elderly couple, he tells us. And Luke's often interested in medical terms and he's accurate. So he'll use language that other authors didn't use because he wants to be accurate and he's interested in medical language. And he says, I want you to meet the two precursor players to the gospel account. And it's a couple by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth will go on to become the parents of John the Baptist, who is the cousin of Jesus. And so the story begins not in a manger for Luke, but it begins with, uh, with Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, and her husband, Zechariah. And he wants us to know some things about them. Now, here's one of the things I just thought this was incredible as I was, as I was studying this. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. If you know any Elizabeths, then you know that name means the Lord's promise or the Lord's oath. So their marriage at the beginning of this story tells a story of what God is about to do because you put this couple together and it's the Lord remembers the Lord's promise. And Luke, being an expert with words, says this couple's too important to leave out of the story because the promise of God got remembered with Zechariah and with Elizabeth. We know that they're elderly at this point. Elderly would mean over 50 at least, most likely 60 to 70 because they're still traveling and they're still uh, active in ministry. They're both of the tribe of Aaron, uh, which means that they are by birth a ministry couple. Um, some of you are by birth a ministry person. Uh, whether you liked it or not, your parents just put you into ministry stuff. The church was open, you were there. This is a little more serious than that. They literally in their culture knew we're the tribe, we're from Aaron's line, we're the tribe of the Levites, we are in the ministry. Here's the problem. There's only one church, one temple. But since Aaron, there are now between 18 and 20,000 descendants of Aaron. Now we have a multiple staff situation going on here. And just managing like three or four personalities can be a challenge from time to time getting things done. I don't know how many people work at your work, but a staff of 20,000 is insane. And there's 18 to 20,000 people who all have the same job. And there's one point place of employment and that's the temple. So they had to work out a system and the system went something like this. Based on kind of uh, where you're from, you serve one week every six months at the actual temple. And out of that 20,000, so you work twice a year for a week, Sabbath to Sabbath. And out of that 20,000, there's like 700 that are on a rotation with you. And the 700 of you are like overlapping and doing a rotation. And then you, go to, you have to go to Jerusalem, no matter where you're from, for that week. And that's when you were, that's a pretty good job, right? Two weeks a year. Some of you are like, dude, that's awesome. I don't even get two weeks vacation to flip it around the other way. But he got two weeks a year and he's on. And so here's Luke and he's telling us the story of this couple. And so with that kind of uh, in, in line, let me just read you some of the story here. It says, in that time, King Herod of Judea, we knew who Herod is now, uh, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. I'm in Luke chapter one, verse five. 
and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now, I love their syncret, the, the way they sync with our stories. We've just been talking about people who walked with God. And I don't, walk with God is probably the best thing you can get on your tombstone. But pretty close to that is uh, they observed all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. It's pretty good. Verse seven, this is a big deal. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Now, Luke is clear. Again, he's a doctor. So there's a reason why they have no children. Number one, she's barren. Number two, they're now old. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, you gotta remember in this culture, Children are considered, Psalms tells us, a blessing from the Lord. So by default, if you have no children, many would assume you are not being blessed of the Lord, even though you're serving the Lord in this role, something must be going on. And people would whisper and gossip. That's not the worst of your problems. There's no retirement plans in this day. There's no social security, no Medicare, no Medicaid. Your plan for retirement generally was dependent on your family taking care of you as you got old. So if you had no children, especially no male children, you're at a very tenuous position as you get up in age. And so they are in a pretty precarious spot. Luke wants us to understand. They want children. It's not they don't want children. They just can't have them. And now they're old. And this is a problem for them. Verse five. Uh, oh, no, I'll jump ahead here. Um, verse eight. Thank you. Once when, the, uh, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God. Now this is back, he's on, he's on duty. This is one of his two weeks. So here's what's cool. They would have to travel. Now Zechariah and, uh, and Elizabeth were from a small town outside of Jerusalem. They would have been from a small community of, of kind of no regard. They would have probably been servicing just in their regular life, kind of as a local pastor. You might think of a rural country pastor. Maybe there's 50 people in town and 20 of them come to church. And those are kind of your people. You're doing all their funerals. And like, that's the, that's the kind of community ministry that would have been their life. But twice a year, they would do the trek into Jerusalem. And just so you have a picture of that, uh, historians would tell us that when Herod rebuilt the temple, it was so beautiful. It was up on the top of the hill that you could see it lit up at night for 30 miles. So for a small town, rural country pastor to make the hike, imagine 30 miles out, probably on foot, they're walking because he knows next week's the week and I'm up and I got to do my priestly duties. And he walks in, he shows up and it's his week. He's on. Verse nine, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is amazing. You could just jump over this, not having any context of what's going on here. But here's what you have to understand. 700 plus people showing up every week. There's not 700 jobs to do. There's only a set amount of things that have to be done. All the restrictions and regulations of the temple. They're very clear on what has to be done. There's one awesome job. And this is the awesome job getting to go in to the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. So here's what happens. 700 or so people come up, come in. They pull their names out of a hat, so to speak. And if you get your name pulled out of the hat, only one person gets to go into the temple. Everyone else is in the courts. There's other courts, there's outer courts, there's the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the Gentiles, all these outer courts. And they're just doing ministry around the temple. But only one guy gets to get in. This is the Super Bowl of being a priest at this time. 
This is one step away from the Holy of Holies where only the high priest gets to go. No one else gets to do this. Zechariah is up in age, 50 years, more than 50 years, probably 60, 70 years old. He's probably been a priest for 50 years. That means for 50 years, twice a year, he's gone to the temple and he's pulled his number and he hasn't got picked. Some of you have experienced not getting picked. You know how lame it is to not get picked. Some of you are having flashbacks to PE right now. I'm just saying, time after time after time, he shows up and he's never picked. He's a country pastor from a small area, from a small town. His wife can't have a kid. People are probably whispering, what's going on with these guys? He hasn't retired yet, even though he's old enough to stop doing it. He continues to do it and suddenly he gets picked. Once you get picked once, that's a wrap for you. Your name's like written down. You got to go into the temple. It's a big deal. They celebrate. You've won the Super Bowl. Here's why it was so significant. Because this job, going in and offering the incense, what that was was the incense was the prayers of the people. And so they would bring this incense in to the, uh, to the altar of incense, and they would offer the incense as like the prayers for the whole people of Jerusalem. And then that person who got to that responsibility got to stand in the temple and pray for all of the prayers of all of the people but also for your own prayers. You're right there at the altar of incense. How cool is that? It's a big deal. And then everyone else has to stand outside the temple. And the scriptures will tell us in a minute, they stand outside the temple and basically they're praying while you're in there praying. But you're the guy that gets to go inside. This is a really big deal. I want you to catch this. Now you come out and once you've done kind of praying for yourself and all the prayers, you come out and you have a moment on the steps of the temple. I got to see this this past year where the steps are. It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's incredible. You walk out on the steps of the temple, and then you give the Lord's benediction from Numbers. The Lord blessed you and keep you. The Lord made his countenance to shine upon you and give you peace. You're the guy who gets to do that, and then everyone like celebrates, woo, it's worship time, and then they get out. So Zechariah gets picked. This is awesome. This is a guy who's had no hope, and this is a cool thing. He gets picked. It's his turn. He gets to go in and do this. While he's in there, verse 11 says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, check this out. We read the Christmas story and we hear the angel of the Lord all the time. Angel shows up, angels in, you know, in the fields, angels and shepherds, angels in the manger. There's angels everywhere. 400 years have gone by. There has not been an angel sighting. There has not been a word from the Lord. There has not been a prophetic utterance. 400 years. And Zechariah walks in and starts praying. No angel, angel. No angel, angel. Just want you to picture this. The angel appeared, right? He walks in, altar, no angel, angel. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. This is the only reasonable response. This is it. Any other response would be absurd. And thank you, Luke, for making sure we got accurate information because any other response would be absurd. If an angel of the Lord appeared next to our little uh, Advent thing right now, you should all be afraid for a moment. You should have an initial reaction of, whoa, that's what he's doing. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer, your prayer has been heard. What do you think he was praying for? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're to give him the name John. And the name John means the word gracious. The Old Testament, this is so good. The Old Testament ends with a warning. God's coming. Families are gonna turn back or else a curse is coming. The New Testament starts with a promise. Here comes grace. Here comes God's graciousness. 
here comes John. I get emotional. I am excited about that. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take any other fermented wine, and he'll be filled, listen to this, from the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Listen, we don't get into long conversations about life in the womb. I'm just telling you, if the Holy Spirit can fill you in the womb, something's going on in there. I'm just saying. He was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. That's awesome. That is so cool. Hope showing up. They're facing hopelessness, but they keep on staying connected to God. They keep on serving. They keep on walking the walk. They keep on talking the talk. They keep on living it out. And then hope shows up. And look at Zechariah's response. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and I'm well along in years. Are you serious? Altar, no angel, angel. Altar, prayer, no angel, angel, angel. Your prayers are answered. How can I be sure of this? This is how you know that he's just human, right? He's old. And his response to the angel is, how can I be sure of this? Oh, I love it. Verse 19, the angel answered, bro, no, that's my version. <laughs> the angel answered, I am Gabriel. Dun, 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 dun. We only know two angels' names. If Michael or Gabriel shows up, pay attention. Things are about to get real, all right? One is connected to Christ, and one is like the warrior of warriors. So Messiah, Christ, Gabriel, shows up. Says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Remember before this, that's where I was. In the presence of God, and then this. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you didn't believe my words, which were true and will come true at their proper time. I love this. Some of us have been questioning God's promises, and we've just kind of shut up about them. It's like, stop shutting up about them. Just believe and trust. So we don't get shut up. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I love this verse. You should underline this temple or this verse because it's hilarious. Because they're outside waiting for the old guy to stop praying. They're waiting for church to get over. Some of you are doing that right now. Some of you, I've caught you out there drinking coffee when you're supposed to be in here. And you're just waiting for church to get over. And that's what they're doing. They're like, is that guy ever going to stop? They're outside waiting for service to get over. I love it. They're like, oh, the old guy's in there. Why, they're wondering, why is he staying so long in the temple? And when he came out, he couldn't even speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. Verse 23, when the time of his service was completed, he returned home. I love this picture. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. He can't speak anymore. I'm just gonna speculate, married couples. Maybe... The fact that he had to listen to her for once contributed to them getting pregnant. I'm just saying, maybe, I don't know, but I don't know how the conversation went from not pregnant to pregnant when he can't talk. I'm just saying, hilarious. But they got pregnant. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. And these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. And the very next verses are, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin being pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And this 
breaks the seal on the Christmas story. Why? Because Zachariah means God remembers and Elizabeth, his promise or his oath. And Luke wants us to know that hope was sent into the world in this exact moment to an old couple who lived in a small town who were just faithfully plodding away, who had every reason to be hopeless with no child and no expectation year after year, not winning the lottery, playing the lottery, not winning the lottery basically. And he's saying year after year, just going through the responsibilities of living for God, walking upright and blameless, even though they were taking criticism. You know they're taking criticism because Elizabeth says, he's removed my disgrace. And hope shows up. And here's my question. As receivers of that hope in your life, how do we now become ambassadors of that hope for everybody else? Because could you imagine if we had the courage to begin to share that story, our story, your story, as ambassadors of hope to people who you know, who are just walking through life right now, going through the motions, waiting for an encounter, and they're gonna be skeptical, even if an angel showed up. But we still have the truth and his promises are still true because God remembers his promise. And the Advent season, the Christmas season just reminds us, God remembers his promises. He remembers his promise to you, just like he remembered it to me, just like he's remembered it to them. And now we get to share that. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are in the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors as if God was making his plea through us. So we get to do that now. And that's what Christmas is about. And that's the purpose and the meaning of Christmas. We remember that God fulfilled and fulfills his promise. And then we get to let others know how good that is. And so we're gonna close a little differently today. I have a, um, a testimony for you guys from some folks in our church just talking about how God showed up faithfully and demonstrated hope. And as that's happening, here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to just be in your still quiet voice asking the Lord, how in the world could I be an agent of hope? How could I demonstrate hope for someone? Maybe there's a story I could tell. Maybe there's someone I know who needs to experience some hope. Maybe there's someone you'd put on my heart. Maybe I have to write a card. Maybe I have to send a letter. Maybe I have to go show up at a house. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe you gotta give some blood next week. I'm not sure what it is, but you could be an ambassador and an agent of hope because of the hope that you've received. And that's what Advent reminds us of. So we're gonna watch this. And as, and as we close, we're gonna sing a, a Christmas carol together and then we'll be done. So pay, pay attention for just a moment. I just remember being really like homesick, you know, being in Michigan, it was like the 4th of July weekend and just sitting in some cold, um, not a week, it's just some cold room. It's just like the size of a closet and a very, cold physician that was just like so here's what happened and um and we were like wait so it was a miscarriage and he goes oh yeah yeah oh sorry yeah sorry we were newly pregnant uh, probably about eight weeks and we were visiting some family and in michigan and i started bleeding and so we went to the er and after two ultrasounds, the doctor there told us that we had miscarried. And the next day, we had a follow-up appointment with a doctor. And I remember asking him if it was worth doing another ultrasound. And he basically said, no, there's no point. You had two ultrasounds. It's, 
not gonna, it's not worth it. Um, we're very much praying that there be a miracle, um, but accepting and trying to seek peace with God's will and God's plan, so. I feel pretty numb, and I myself wasn't, I didn't really feel like I could pray. Um, but I'm really thankful that I had other people praying for me and for us um, when I couldn't pray for myself. So then about a week later, we came back home and we saw my regular doctor. Your doctor also said it's not worth it to do another ultrasound because it's the tests are so conclusive right. that it would not be a good like decision as a professional. Right, but here we can do this blood test yeah. pretty simply and easily. Sure, we can do that. Right. And my pregnancy hormones had doubled, which they should have been going down if I had miscarried. And then two days after that, we got a new ultrasound and there she was. Our happy girl's heart was beating and she was completely healthy and whole. I remember one particular friend um, who prayed for us and was specifically praying for a miracle and just remember him saying um, just how incredible it was to pray for a miracle and actually see it happen. I think I often think of like these little miracles that happen in our lives and like these little almost call them coincidences of meeting the right person at the right time and these little things and you read in the Bible and the scripture about these big miracles and you can kind of get convinced that God's out of the big miracle business and to me that this was my big miracle and while that doesn't happen all the time uh, it did happen to me it did happen to us and she's just walking, talking proof that miracles and big miracles still happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think back to the doctors who told us that it wasn't worth doing an ultras another ultrasound. And they didn't say there wasn't no any hope, but it felt like they were saying there was no hope. And um, I think there's always hope. God loves us and he's for us and that's, that's the hope. Not everybody's, you know, miracle looks the same, um, but it is the same God and at the end of it, um, you'll come through changed. Tempting to say that maybe I wouldn't go through that again because it was really painful, um, but... <laughs> it was a lingering thing too. Yeah. yeah. But... Um, He's just shown me that his plan was way greater than mine. Um, I had this amazing kid. <laughs> I get to tell this story about what my God did for me. And I really hope that um, I just hope that it's used to um, show people who he is and how good he is.
So God, we recognize the hope that you put on display for us. And we also recognize that freely we were given, so free, freely we receive, freely we'll just give. And I just pray this week, you'd open our eyes, give us eyes to see how to give this incredible gift of hope away this holiday season. Maybe this season, maybe, uh, maybe it happens this week, maybe our eyes are just open this week and the opportunity comes in a couple weeks, but give us eyes to see places where hopelessness where no expectation of something good has crept in and where we can be agents of hope, that expectation of something good. And maybe it cost us some time or some margin or something, but maybe the impact of that would be so huge. Literally lives transformed and changed and reconciled and the truth of your love on display in us and through us. Help us to change the story. <laughs> We're not limited to all these other voices. We have access to your voice. And God, we know the power of your voice. It creates whole new things. So speak to us and through us. We love you and welcome you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.